Okay, Pete Giuliano, it is Saturday, the 17th of June, 2017. That makes this solder smoke, what number, Pete? 197. And before I do anything else, I want to congratulate uh, Asher Farhan and Bill Mira as being the 2017 recipients of the QRPARCI induction into the Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Bill. Shocking. Shocking, Pete. Thank you for the congratulations. <laughs> no, no. I, um, no, not shocking at all. I, I, I Great. Feel, I, feel like, I feel like that old uh, video from, what was the show that they used to have, um, you know, Wayne's World. Where those yeah, two crazy, yeah. crazy hippie kids would I'm say, worthy. "I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy." <laughs> no, well deserved. And you know, I I think it's so fitting that it was a dual induction, and it was you too. <laughs> well, no, I mean this, yeah. but this gets back yeah. to the "I'm not worthy" thing because I definitely think Farhan they 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 recognized uh, the uh, the uh, his worthiness, <laughs> and I'm really glad that they they did. Um, but I, you know, I, I, we, I think a lot of people, when they get into this group and they look and they see all the others, and I see you in there and, and I see, you know, Wes and Rick Campbell and, and many of the other luminaries of, of the QRP world, of the homebrew world. I think I am not worthy. Actually, what my reaction was, I thought that this was some sort, I really thought it was some sort of, <laughs> I thought it was some sort of payback. For the April first story we did about you being expelled from the QRP <laughs> Hall of Fame, because Preston had said something about sort of like you know watch out because payback you know we you know about payback yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, so I thought yeah. this might have been a a, a a reprisal but honestly thank you very much to the uh, QRP ARCI guys uh, Preston Douglas and the board it I it truly is an honor I have the thing on display here in the Ooh. In the shack. I hope I'm not expelled next April 1st. I, I hope not. Well, you're going to have to watch what you say now, Bill. Well, listen, I want that. that we're going we're to we're, we're discuss this during today's podcast because I am doing something in the QRP area. I have a project going, but uh, I just, I, I really feel, felt very happy about it. And, you know, this gets us to another topic Farhan in the USA. Yes. Because he, you know, he was in, he, he, he made a, a, a long trip, West Coast, East Coast. He stopped off in Dayton and the four days in May. And I, w- I was so pleased, our family was so pleased that, that he took the trouble to make uh, a side trip down here to the Washington, D.C. area. And we actually had Farhan here in the Solder Smoke Shack. And yeah, what a, what a What a gentleman, what a wonderful guest. And it was just so cool. To have him here talking about all the rigs that he's influenced. And before he came, I, I put on the bench all the, the homebrew rigs that I had in the shack in which there was an element of his circuitry there. And it it was quite a collection. I When he walked in the shack, I asked him if it, was, if it would be okay if I turned on the webcam so that we could just sort of create uh, a digital uh, recording of of the visit and he agreed and I turned it on I have it up on on the blog it was up there a couple weeks ago two three weeks ago it was a lot of fun and as I went through I said look there's your circuitry look there's the the signal generator with the the coil wound on the McDonald's straw and there's the uh, the um, J-Bot amplifiers and of course the bit X's 
So, I mean, a really great moment. He, uh, and, and I, I must say also that on the West Coast, he went to Wes Hayward's house, the W7ZOI's house, and there was a collection there. Of, there was a Hall of Fame. <laughs> wow. I mean, that yeah. was, you know, that was really amazing. And I, I, we, I have the link up on the, uh, the Solder Smoke blog, and I'll put it here on the, in the notes to this, uh, to this podcast. But some of the real luminaries and, and movers and shakers, I mean, Roy Llewellyn was there, Jeff Dam, Rick Campbell, a bunch of others, Wes, others were there. And they looked at, they all, they all brought their rigs. Some of these rigs that are really the kind of, I mean, historic kind of seminal rigs the um roy llewellyn had the the optimized qrp transceiver uh, rick campbell i think had his original r2 or one of the original uh, direct conversion uh, phasing receivers there and of course all of wes's rigs and it was it just just fantastic stuff I, that was a, i was really glad that wes put that put the pictures up on the uh on on his uh, blog page we have a link there but that was that was an exciting moment and i just want to note that Wes uses Giuliano Blue as well when he paints his rigs. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that picture, and I said, "You said the same thing." Holy cow, Giul- you know, no, Pete. You know what this just proves? Great minds think alike. That's yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. He might have been ahead of you on the Giuliano Blue. I, I don't know. But I, but I, I think I have actually discovered, and you guys might not be aware of this. It might be a subliminal thing. Why is it that you have this attachment to that particular shade of blue? And I, I came across this. I was looking at uh, an old documentary, uh, the Bell 1953 Transistor Documentary. We have a link up on the blog. And in it, they make, well, I think you mentioned that in that same year, as an 11-year-old kid, you were experimenting with solid-state electronics with the famous CK722 transistor. I looked at that. I had a picture of it up. It is Giuliano Blue. All right? So, you know, you and Wes may have been influenced, and it's, it's kind of stuck in your, your mind, and the next thing you know, you're right. painting all your rigs blue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. a very cool thing. Hey, hey, you know, the thought that went through my mind, you had mentioned that Farhan brought all of these rigs with them. You know, he brought a lot of gear with him. Like, I guess he had the the microbit X or whatever. Right. I wonder. I wonder what kind of problems he had getting through customs. He, he told me. <laughs> I asked him the same question. He told me it wasn't so bad. It, it really wasn't. He said it was. It was okay. It was, it was all right. Because <laughs> yeah. it was. Some, I agree. It was some pretty scary stuff, <laughs> including yeah. the the Tech fourteen oh one A spectrum analyzer that he brought for me. He bought it out in Dayton. Gave it to me. And I, I joked, I said, this is going to help keep me out of jail or keep me in, out of, uh, you know, out of the crosshairs of the, the spectral purity police. Um, but it, he gave it to me and I, he had that in the bag. He had the micro bid X. He had the sweeperino, all this other stuff. And, uh, it, it was, it was great. I said, you know, terrific. But, but he had, no, it was a good trip. He was up in, he, he was in New York. He was out on the West Coast. I think he was in, I think he was in Texas. He went to he went to New York. He went to Columbia University to meet up with an old colleague there, and then he went back to New York and was on the Lower East Side before heading back over to Hyderabad. But we had a we had a great time. It was you, great you know, fun. This this would have been the year to been the Dayton, and the, and the reason is not only was Farhan there, so was Grayson. I know, I know. Well, Farhan Farhan told me that he met up with Grayson and he got oh, wow. and he got cool. Grayson to sign the book. 
it's on, yeah. you, you know, he had a he had a copy of Grayson's Hollow State Design. So wow. they 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 met up there. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. This might have been the year. Well, we didn't go though, Pete. <laughs> I, I, could, I couldn't stand the bratwurst. <laughs> uh, it, but they're they're in a new location now, Xenia. It's the yeah, 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 Xenia yeah, thing. Could be better. We we're gonna keep calling it Dayton. Anyway, uh, it, it was a great visit. I gotta get. Uh, I'm gonna work. Get going on the spectrum analyzer. That's one of the new things I'm gonna do in the shack. Work on test gear. I got a, I got this this and I got another piece of test gear that I'm gonna work on. We could mention that. I'll mention that now. It's um. Uh, I was. This is sort of travelogue. In addition to Farhan's travels, uh, last week we were supposed to do the podcast last week, but last week I made an unexpected trip up to New York City. You know, what you know how it is, Pete. When you're married, sometimes you make these unexpected treats tr- uh, trips. You're going along. You think you think everything is fine and planned, and all of a sudden you hear, "Hey, we're going to New York City." Yeah. But that's not all bad. No, it's not. No, you got to no, roll with. No. You got to roll with. The, you got to go yeah, with the flow. New York, Sometimes New York is good. No, New we York had we good. we had a great time. We went up. My Elisa's uh, niece, uh, our niece Brianna, uh, was graduating from Princeton University, and they, oh. they were having a family celebration in nearby New York City. So we went up there, and this allowed me to launch the second half of an operation that was launched, a solder smoke operation that was launched by our friend Steve Silverman. Back in April, Steve was moving. And Dave, and, and Dave. well, he's a key element here. Steve um, was moving out of Lower Manhattan, and kind of, he had to kind of downsize a little bit on the test gear. And he had uh, a Hewlett Packard 8640B signal generator. Ooh, I know that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and he said he had to get rid of it. He had to get rid of it quick, and he was uh, he was afraid that it was going to go to. Uh, he was going to put it on Craigslist, and I just couldn't bear the thought. We, I mean, there was a brief effort to find somebody else in the city who might need one, and then finally I looked at it and I started to drool. I said, "Man, I need one of these things." The radio gods have spoken, so I, I, I contacted the only another guy in New York City that I know, Dave W two D A B, a longtime solder smoke supporter, and I said, "Dave, I want this thing. Steve's got it." He says, "Hey, don't worry about it. He's going to be. He was going to be in Lower Manhattan. He picked it up now." Steve had warned us that this thing is big and heavy, but I don't think, I, I certainly didn't take that too seriously. I mean, I've got a DX100 here. I'm thinking, how big and heavy could this thing be? Um, and Dave, I don't think Dave really kind of fully appreciated it either. And both of us understood exactly when we, <laughs> at the moment that we had to try to pick the thing up. This thing is like, it's heavy like in the DX100 league. It's like it, yeah. but it's more concentrated. It's got a greater density. It's it's big, man. This thing is built like a tank, and you know, I, I got to say, about I, I had it in the shack, and I had trouble putting it in the shack because you you got to find some place where you could put it where it's the the furniture is going to support it. The thing it weighs about forty five pounds, but it's, yeah, it's but it's about that. it's about a third of the size of a DX one hundred. It's, it's yeah, eighteen inches, eighteen Deep. inches, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I hit, I stubbed my toe on that thing. I almost broke my toe. <laughs> but we're very grateful. And it was really cool. We met up with, with Dave, W2DAB. We, uh, on our way out of the city, I, I told my wife and daughter, I said, we gotta stop, we gotta stop Dave's, near Dave's apartment, and I'm gonna see if we can pick up the, the device. And so we met up, we took some pictures. I'm gonna put some pictures up on the blog. Dave, what a nice guy. And, uh, it was really great to have a solder smoke, uh, 
fan and 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 co-conspirator right there in the Big Apple. So a good trip and uh, and came back. Now I got to get the 8640 going and I got to get the Spectrum analyzer going. Pete, it's going to be a revolution in test gear here at Solder Smoke headquarters. You know, this is something I, I I've said this before. Sometimes what you got to do is you got to take a pause from projects to work a little bit on the bench and the test gear. It's almost like a kind of a maintenance cycle that you have to go into. And I think I'm at that point, although I got a couple projects going too. So, you know, it gets, it gets to the point where you got to multitasking. Hey, but we were talking, when I was here, I was talking to Farhan. He, he told us something interesting. On the BIDX40 modules, he said that they've already produced 5,000 of them. Wow. Produced and shipped 5,000. Wow. And he said now they're at a pace where they're going to, they're producing 1,000 a month. Factory. It's, it's, it's amazing. Well, yeah. yeah, but it's kind of a decentralized factory. It's kind of a, a, a nice factory there. And he's got, you know, he's, he's, he's supporting the, uh, UMA and the others who are, uh, who are working on, on, on winding the coils and things like that. So it's, it was great. He brought me a whole bunch of the, uh, the tri-filler FT, uh, uh, 43 material, uh, coils. I'm going to send you a few. I gave a few to Armin. I'm going to send a few to you. Oh, cool! Yeah, so I mean, they'll they'll be very really useful. Um, go ahead. Hey, well, while you're on that, I I shared with you. I discovered there's a net on the west coast here on Sunday night, a Bidex net, and and I hear people on that net calling CQ Bidex. <laughs> you know, fourteen two. I mean, seven two seven seven. And uh, I I mean, this thing is really spreading. I mean, you say it's spreading. But listen on the air, you can hear it spreading. And you can see it spread. There's a, a map. Somebody has put up a, a, a Google map, and it's up there. And they've had a little problem, some problems with it. But it, it doesn't even capture a small portion of the number of BIDX that are out there. But it's really impressive when you see this thing spread all around the world. A lot of them in Europe, most of them in North America, uh, but every a few in South America, many in Asia, a few, many in, in, in India especially. So... That's really pretty cool. But this brings us, Pete, BIDX. You and I say BIDX. I say BIDX, you say BIDX, right? There are other pronunciations. I believe Farhan says B-I-T-X. And somehow, somehow it, it sounds better when you're, when you have, uh, when you're, when you're speaking kind of the way Indians speak. It sounds better. It kind of, it sings. It doesn't It's got really, an English accent to it. It's got a, an Indian accent to it. I think yeah. that, well, I think that might be in a certain sense the, the, the proper way. Some people are saying Bitex. I think the yeah. Brits have a tendency to say Bitex. I, I don't like it. It sounds computery. It sounds bits and bytes. It's sort of like Belthorn. <laughs> you know the Belthorn special. Yeah, that's Belthorn. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's kind of yeah. Well, then there's another one. That, there's another group, and the, you know this is because of the way folks from this state are. There are folks who put the emphasis on the Tex, because everything's got to be Texan, you know. By Tex, no, it's not that te- Texas. No, it's this not a Texan thing. No, no offense, but it just isn't. But anyway, so I, I'm I'm going to stick with um, Bidex. But, yeah, I think that makes sense. <laughs> but of course, everybody's free to use their own friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what else we got? Let's hear. Um, hey, hey, I'm going to give you a little postscript on that. Uh, I'll frequently get on the air and say I'm running a Homburg rig, and they say, "Oh, one of those Bidex." Oh, really? That's getting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I said no. 
No, it's a defect. <laughs> it's a defect. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I've had a number of conversations where guys would, you know, you tell them about the rig and they get interested. And then what happens a lot is they go to my QRZ.com page and they see that scary picture of the scratch-built Manhattan-style uh, 8x11 copper-clad board. And I can hear them sometimes they say, whew, that looks complicated and scary. And I said, but wait, wait, there's there's an easier way to do it. You could get the board with all the parts on it. You know, I think that was Farhan's original intent, and it really does lure him in, lure them in. Oh, they, sure. they, 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 they hear that, and they think, yeah, I could do that. And I've had a number of them say, yeah, I'm going to order it as soon as we get, get off the air. So I, I think it is a great way to, to bring people in and get them used to the idea that they can build and construct and, uh, and modify well, there's another piece to that. Uh, I was listening to this net, and this guy was lamenting that he smoked his bidex. He, he, I, I don't know what he was doing, but it sounds like he shouldn't ever turn on a soldering iron. And his final words were, "Well, it was only fifty-nine dollars. I ordered another one." No, I, I think that's a that's a <laughs> huge factor because, and I think I, I think you really you're right because I think what happens is the the modern uh, appliance rigs are the modern black boxes, as um, as uh, as Tim, uh, Tim Walford Tim would say. Yeah, he, you know they're so expensive that the guys once they get them in the shack, they're they're afraid they would never dream of opening the case because it's so expensive. You know, it was like me with my Lafayette HA six hundred receiver as a kid with jeweled movements. Yeah, and I wouldn't open that thing up. I was scared. Right, that that thing was so important to me. But if if you say, hey, it's only fifty nine bucks, what the heck, you know? Like you said, if you blow it up, buy another one. They got DHL shipping now. You get it in like three days. It's amazing. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it's. Oh, a, they do. Oh, yo, wow. So yeah. it's moving moving a lot faster, but but really great stuff, and and uh, I think it I think it's just wonderful. Now that we got the pronunciation problem down, guys, check it out. HF hfsigs.com. Get yourself a bidex. Fifty nine bucks with. With digital VFO. By the way, a bit of trivia here. The world's largest postal system is India Post. In case you didn't know that. Well, I think there's the a lot. The <laughs> world's largest postal system is India Post. I think, there's a, I think, I think anytime you say world's largest, it's it's pretty good chance that whatever it is, it's going to be India. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or China, but uh, yeah. but yeah, it, it it well, we got when when Farhan was here, we got to talking a bit about his home country and what an amazing place. And I told him, I said, when if I ever retire, and it's probably going to not be too long, but then I might start, I might do some more traveling. Might go to Xenia, Ohio. Yeah, there you go. Might go to Hyderabad, India. That'd be fun. All right, let's see. Oh, anyway, we, I wanted to mention regarding the. Uh, uh, newly, uh, the, 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 uh, the elevation to the QRP Hall of Fame, it has put some pressure on me, you know, Pete. I, I know you haven't felt this because you're just a lot stronger and you're just impervious to this kind of peer pressure. But I felt that I have to do something QRP-ish, CW-ish. Ooh, wow. Yeah. No, boy, that's really going uh, on thin end of the branch. I know. <laughs> But it's also because Farhan gave me this really cool Indian telegraph key. I have a picture of it up on on the blog. It is. Hold on. You might not have seen it. You might. Let me see it here. 
Oh, look, yeah. Look at that. I'm showing that to Pete there on Skype. Man, look at that thing. Isn't that cool? We yeah. have a link. And that's, that's like a pump handle. Yeah, but it's 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 brass. It's got really nice movement. Yeah. yeah. And it, it just it makes me want to, to generate some dots and dashes. And anybody who's interested in buying one of these things, the guy in India is, is, is selling them. And I, put, I have a link to his, uh, his site up on the blog. Check it out. But, okay, here's my plan. I want to get on CW. I don't want to make, I don't want to make it too hard. I want to make use of stuff that I already have around the shack. And I want to just put together a rig. It's got to be really QRP. It's got to be CW. It's got to be real simple. So, I'm going fishing. This is a, a fishing rig. That's what I'm going to call it. This is the fishing rig. Because the receiver is going to be my famous Herring Aid 5. Oh, yeah. The direct conversion receiver. And the transmitter, I'm just going the Tuna Tin 2. <laughs> We're going fishing. All right? Yeah, there now, you go. Now, here's the thing. I, I like the Tuna Tin 2 circuit. But I must say, and people are going to be mad at one of me when I, when I say this. I don't like the Tuna Tin bit. The can. The can of tuna thing. I mean, it's cute and everything. Okay? But... It's, I don't like it because you have to constantly flip the thing over. You got the connectors down below. You got the wires coming through. We have gotten used to above board building an operation. Everything up on top, right? So what I'm going to do with the tuna tin two, at least temporarily, I'm going to, I'm going to disconnect or, or, or remove the circular circus board, circuit board that sits on top. And that's going to go on to kind of breadboard style, a piece of wood. Right next to it is going to be the herring aid five. I'm going to have one double pole, double throw switch. I got a big, big one right here. Boom. That'll switch. Half of it will switch the 12 volts from receive to transmit. The other half will switch the antenna, right? Bob's your uncle. I'm going to be, I'm going to be crystal controlled. I got a rock for 7050. I was working on the Herring 85 this morning and what I wanted to do, it uses Varactor tuning, you know, and with Varactor tuning, Depending on the value of the pot that's changing the, 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 the voltage on those diodes, you can vary very easily the, the tuning range. And it really doesn't do you any good to have to be able to tune from 7.0 up to 7.3 if you're only interested in the portion, say, from 7025 to 7070 right there. And I just fooled around with the values on that pot, and I got it so it's right in that range. It's fairly stable even though it lacks your beloved SI5351 digital magic box. But I'm going to set it up, and the TunaTin 2 puts out a quarter watt. I'm going to be crystal controlled. I'm going to use the telegraph key, and I think maybe tomorrow I'll have this thing on the air. Uh, By the way, just to share with uh, podcast listeners, if they were wondering about uh, how to do that, uh, one of the things that you can do on the Varactor tuning is if you put a resistor at either end of the pot. Yeah. So so this way you're limiting the range that you're tuning. So it'll only it'll only kind of tune in there and you can adjust the values of the resistors to pick that range where right, you right. want to do the voltage range. So you, you might elaborate a little bit. People say, well, okay, how do you do that? You well, know? I did it even even in a simpler way. This in the in the in the um, in the Herring 85, the tuning pot has one end of the pot is connected to 12 volts. The other end of the pot is connected to ground. And the wiper goes to the to the Varactors, right? 
So I just figured that if I put a 1K resistor from the wiper to ground, it turns the thing, in effect, into a 1K pot. Yeah. All right? Yeah. So on, if you tune to one end, it's going to have 1K. The other end, it's going to be connected directly to ground. So that's that's the way I did it. It was real simple, but it was kind of cut and try, and I, and I just tried a couple different values, and then we got it going. So it's given me the tuning range I wanted. I also changed some of the uh, the caps in the uh, in the VFO on this thing. And I went with NPO caps where in the original design they were, the original design was set up so that you could buy everything you needed from Radio Shack. So obviously you weren't going to be able to buy NP0 uh, caps at Radio Shack. So they had some poly caps in there and I think it contributed to drift. So I, I changed some of those to NPOs that I had here and that seems to stabilize things a little bit. So anyway, we're, we're, uh, we've, we've got the receiver going and the transmitter's working and just put it all together and I will be Tearing up seven oh five oh. There you go. Hey, uh, a postscript. Um, some people who may be listening to the podcast can go back and search for the tuna tin two, and find the original article. Uh, you need to exercise a little caution. There's a later version of the tuna tin two that has a different low pass filter on it to comply with the FCC specs. The original tuna tin two was a little marginal, so try to find the later version. Yeah, and Demar De wrote a uh, article that says, "By the way, guys, you need to put this filter on it because the <laughs> the rules have changed, and and don't be fooled. A hundred milliwatts, you can work the world. <laughs> so yeah, you you gotta you gotta make sure you comply." Good point. So, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's you know you gotta 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 stay on the straight and narrow here, Pete. You know. Yeah, you're in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you gotta set you, <laughs> you Imagine. Imagine the shame. Yeah. <laughs> Any, anyway, that's going to be the the fishing rig. Um, cool. Let's see. Oh, oh I, I wanted to mention the Manassas Ham Fest. I went to a ham fest. Um, I guess it was a week before last or two weeks ago. And Armand and I always go to this one. We meet up there. Armand comes up from Richmond, WA1, UQO. We are kind of a, a team on, on ham fests. It was kind of cool. Like we got to see uh, Charles, AI4OT. He's uh, he's always at the at the ham fest. This time Charles was tailgating, and I bought a whole bunch of stuff from him because he's he's into the same kind of rigs that we are. He's also into QRP, and man, he sold me some good stuff. So he sold me a couple panels from a, a rig, and he and he sold me a couple of I mean like like front and back panels. It was like a, a rig I think that he kind of kind of gave up on, and he sold me a couple of uh, boards, unstuffed boards for. The multi-band version of the Bidex that some guy in the UK was putting out. So I have the blank boards here. I don't know. If I'm gonna. I don't know if I'm gonna stuff them or partially stuff them or make use of them somehow. But it was cool and very cool to see uh, to see Charles. But then I went around. I, I wasn't really looking for anything specific. I have the same list of stuff that I look for when we do uh, go to the ham fest. You know, the same kind of parts we need. I'm always looking for aluminum boxes, chassis, things like that. You know. Hamfests can be a bit of a downer sometimes. You, you and I have talked about this, and it, you know, a lot of times what you're looking at are, you know, just collections of parts that have been sitting in cardboard boxes for a long time, right? And um, I, I, I found this one real old timer there who was—he looked like he was really significantly trying to downsize the shack, and I realized that the the all, a lot of these boxes were stuff that, stuff that had been accumulating in his shack ever since he got into ham radio, which could have been, in this guy's case, easy 60, 70 years ago. He, he was getting on. 
Um, so there are a couple things he had. Like uh, it's very common. You have probably have one. I have one. A box of rocks. A box of crystals. Over the years, crystals accumulate. It's got some weird frequency. You throw it in the box of crystals. Someday I might use it for something, right? You know, 5.2369 or something like that. In it goes. So this guy was selling the whole box of rocks for um, for eight bucks, and I, I didn't want to argue with him or try to try to chisel him down on the crystals. So I gave him the eight bucks. I brought the thing home, and I start going through it looking for useful crystals. There was some 3579s in there, all right? They, they're useful. I found a few 40-meter crystals. They were useful. But then I found this little weird blue circular thing. Mark said, Fillmore Crystal Detector, Fixed Crystal Detector. I looked it up. Yeah, it's from like 1936 when crystal radios were still a thing. And they they have in it, apparently, um, a Galena crystal in a glass tube with the cat's whisker inside kind of spring held up against the crystal and then they put it in there and so this would prevent you uh, allow you to avoid having to find the sweet spot yourself it's like the, the sweet spot pre-selected i thought that was pretty good but then it was weird because in the course of looking for that i happened to spot something else that i bought from another guy at the ham fest and that is a little a little cool looking wooden box i bought it for the box and the dial neither armin nor i knew what it was but in the same on the same website that described the Fillmore crystal detector, there was a box describing the Leo Lambert receiver. I was gonna I was thinking about pulling a, a, a joke on you, Pete. I was gonna say, Hey Pete, my new receiver, it's a Leon Lambert. Have you ever run one of those? I would have gotcha. <laughs> I would have been a gotcha. This Leon Lambert was making crystal radios in the mid twenties out of Wichita, Kansas. And this thing was, he was selling for five bucks, which was big money back then. Uh, and it, it really, all, all it is is a wooden box. And the story I got is the box, he, he, he found out that schools all over Kansas were having their chalk, like for the chalkboard, delivered in these little wooden boxes. I remember that, yeah. Do you, do you, yeah, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. The chalk? You remember was, the chalk? They had dovetail in the corners and a sliding top. Holy cow! That's what it is. That's what yeah. it is. But he he went around and bought up all the old used boxes and used them as the cases for his his crystal radios. And inside he's got nothing but a coil with a wiper, and it looks kind of fancy, but it's it's really nothing. It's just a coil with a a wiper going along it, and you hook up the crystal on the front using some fan stock clips. Anyway, that that took us back to about 1924, Wichita, Kansas. So. There you're getting back to the earliest days of, of radio. I mean, the first broadcast radio in the United States was 1925, you know? That, you know, and I was thinking about that. That means that in a certain sense, cars, the car, the technology for cars is... Well, predates pre- that. Predates, but, but it's roughly the same time period. Yeah. So yeah. car technology and radio technology, about similar age. Have you, uh, have, you put a pri- have you taken a look at the price of that if you were trying to sell that? Oh, I don't. I, I haven't looked, but I, I don't think it's. I think there's a lot of them out there. I don't think it's really worth anything. Uh, you so. might be surprised. Really? Did you check? Yeah. No, but I'm telling you, those could go for several hundred dollars. You might Holy be cow. sitting on a. You might be sitting on a gold mine there, Bill. <laughs> Cha ching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you may want something. Yeah. Maybe we're trading something. Yeah. All right, but you know this and that and that movie, that 1953 transistor documentary. 
You know, that, so I, this is a, a film that somebody sent to me, and it, it's a 1953 um, documentary. It's like 10, 15 minutes out of the Bell system and describes the development of transistors in the early stages. And when I put this up, I was really blown away by your email. Well, I mean, actually, I, I was the one who remembered this. But you, at, 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 in that year, 1953, at age 11, were building, was building their, your first solid-state piece of gear. Pretty cool with the CX-722. Yeah, you know, the uh, thing that's interesting, that movie, they had already advanced uh, what the transistors could do in terms of frequency. I mean, you know, basically, the early transistors were DC switches. Yeah, we're amplifying, but I mean, it was in the audio range. But that movie also alludes it in just from 1948 to 53, you know, in, in the span of five, six years. They were already moving into the RF spectrum, but there was a, a big quantum leap it, later in the 60s where you got into the really high-frequency transistors. I mean, at that point in time, 10 megahertz, 15 megahertz, something like that, which was significant. But then, you know, was, there were quantum leaps. And then I think about 1973, which was 20 years later, we have integrated circuits doing RF work. You know, That's amazing now. Things. 20 years, just 20 years what took place it's an amazing it's a reminder how young the technology is and yeah. you know and i you know and all of all of us who've been in the game for a while really are our life lifespans cover most of this this technology when i my first radio club in new york w2dmc the name of the club was and still is the crystal radio club they called it that because when the club was founded that's what it was all about. It was about crystal radios, right? It wasn't about amateur radio. The only kind of radio at the time was crystal radio. So a bunch of guys in the area got together and made the Crystal Radio Club. And when I joined the club, <coughs> some of the original members were still active in the club. This is uh, this is all new stuff, Pete. Hey, um, speaking of the CX-722, it has popped up. It keeps popping up. The radio gods are sending us a message. They might want you to build a new rig with a CK-722. You know, Armand at the, at the Manassas Ham Fest gave me a huge collection of electric radio magazine. I have become an enormous fan of this magazine. I always was a fan. But now that I have access to more and more of them, I realize what a treasure this is. There is ham radio history in that magazine that has never made it into QST, or any other publication. And I think it's something that really needs to be kind of recognized and protected. I mean, the, every time I pull one of these things off the shelf, I learn something, a, a significant bit of ham radio history that I've never seen anywhere else. For example, Lou McCoy wrote a series of kind of uh, reminiscences about his time at the ARRL. One that I was reading yesterday while sitting out there on the National Mall at lunchtime was about his very first solid-state project for QST, and it was using the CK-722. Oh, wow. It was his first his first solid-state project, and he said he had a problem because it was like a simple, I think it was like a code practice oscillator. And he got it to work, and then they put the schematic out. It was very simple, but then guys started writing back saying that they were having trouble getting it going, and he discovered that in some of the early runs of the CK-722, there was a kind of a, a, an upper-frequency error so it wouldn't oscillate even at that portion of the audio spectrum. So that, that, that was kind of interesting. 
Do you know that uh, there's stuff I found in there? Uh, oh, but sticking with, with Lou, Lou McCoy for a minute, one of his, his last articles talks about his early days at ARRL headquarters. And it's kind of creepy a little bit. I mean, I don't want to do any ARRL bashing here, but he talks about how when he got there, he found he was greeted with a certain coldness, a certain distance. You know why? Because he wasn't seen as a sufficiently CW kind of guy. He was he was a phone man, and that was not seen as a good thing. Wow! So he said he he really even though he was quite proficient at CW, because he occasionally danced with the microphone. (laughs) He was a bit he was a bit of an outcast. Wow. Hey, um, yeah, and, and you know this this kind of attitude, this kind of tribalism, this kind of narrow focus, this this belief that if you're not doing exactly what I'm doing, you must be wrong or um, you know not as cool as I am. There, there's another, there's a series of articles, and I talked about this in the last podcast about the history of amateur SSB, amateur use of SSB, and most of that history focuses on. Late 40s, early 50s, Stanford University, Villard, those guys. But I, in, in electric radio, I discovered that there was a much earlier series of experiments with SSB on the West Coast in around 1930, 1933. By, in 1933, guys were building SSB rigs. Can you believe it? Oh no, I didn't realize that. Uh, I did. I didn't either. And until I, I found the, and 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 Lamb. What's what's Lamb's first name? Richard Lamb. Hold on, I got it here. Da, 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 da. Oh, the Lamb Jim, noise. Jim, Jim Lamb. Jim yeah. Lamb was the guy who pioneered crystal filters and sig- and single signal reception for superheads. Yeah. But earlier in the 1930s, he was doing experiments with SSB out. And, and and he was at the time working for 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 the ARRL and QST. He was told to do a report for the ARRL on the feasibility and usefulness of SSB. He prepared the report. He presented it, and it was published. The first portion of it was published in QST in the early 30s. But then it was completely kind of it was almost like a Soviet style erased from history. Wow. And it, and it, the reason, there was a, a number of different reasons, that, and they go into it in the article, but, but they weren't wild about it. You know what I'm saying? He's making a face. Well, you know what? It's the advertisers. <laughs> they, the, the advertisers weren't doing this. <laughs> well, the, the, the guy who, the guy who wrote the article in ER said that it was a, a number of different things that, that they, they were kind of mad at Lamb for some other reasons. And, and not only that, they said that some of the people who were kind of in the leadership in the ARRL and QST at the time really didn't appreciate or didn't really grasp the, the technological sophistication. So it was pushed aside. But that 15 years later, it, it, it appears and, and takes ham radio by storm. But Lamb and a bunch of others on the West Coast actually had this thing going back in the early 30s. Hey, um, another thing, Frank Jones shows up a lot. You know, we talk about Frank Jones, legendary figure in, in ham radio uh, in, in that time period. 
And uh, I didn't realize that he was one of the founders of Lafayette Radio Electronics. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And, and, and a lot of good stuff there. But uh, I want to, you know, I want to read. We've got a little time. I, I want to read one of the articles here just to give you a sample of what we're talking about in electric radio. And this is by a guy who was one of their most prolific authors, Bruce Vaughn, NR5Q. He specialized in <clears throat> regenerative receivers. <clears throat> but let me read you this. The, the title of this article is Debugging Homebrew Rigs. Wow. Yeah, we've been there. And he, he begins. This is Bruce Vaughn, NR5Q. Here is a point I have often pondered. Why, when you build electronic gear, do those items that seem to have the most bugs when power is first applied often turn out to be examples of your better efforts? If a receiver, for example, works moderately well when first powered up, it will probably remain only average in performance. But if said receiver greets you with squawks, screeches, distorted sound, and a wisp of smoke, plus a bug or two that refuses to be identified, you may very well be on your way to creating an outstanding performer. Been there? I'll bet you have. If not, consider yourself lucky and move on to another article. <laughs> but he talks about, he says here, and this is a point I think for guys who are just getting started in this game. He says, um, okay, you get the general idea. Now applying such careful and well-planned construction practices when your receiver is powered up for the first time, you should be greeted with pleasant musical-like sounds of rare DX pounding in with ear-shattering volume. Oh, if such were only true. I have yet to build a receiver that worked perfectly the first time I turned it on. Some come very close and only require minor adjustments. However, receivers requiring more effort and thought, receivers that refuse to respond to common troubleshooting tactics, are far more interesting and usually turn out surprisingly well. Bit of brute. That's called the Vaughn paradox. Interesting stuff. Uh, and I can well understand it. If you turn it on and it works, you say, "Oh yeah, good," and you don't you don't bother to see if you can make any improvements. But where you're forced to fix something, then you realize it's it's capable of doing better things. Yeah, I can understand that exactly. Yeah. Let me read you a little bit about Richard, about Jim Lamb. It says, in 1934, Jim Lamb, W1AL, the technical editor of QST, prepared a report on the feasibility of single sideband carrierless phone transmissions on amateur frequencies for the ARRL Board of Directors. So we're, in, we're talking 1934. Lamb received board permission to present the report in a series of articles in QST. The first article, Background for Single Sideband Phone, was published in the October 1935 issue. The article on page 33 and 34 did not appear in the table of contents on page 3 of the issue, nor does it appear in any of the QST indexes. The article ends very abruptly in the middle of an explanation of carrier phase requirements. There were never any follow-up articles, no explanations, no editorial comments from K.B. Warner, W1EH, editor of QST and League Secretary, about the SSB article. There were never any references to the article. It was as if the report never existed. It's like the X-Files. <laughs> That's pretty wild. I didn't know yeah. about that. So guys, with those of you who have a big collection of QSTs, go out and check out that, that issue. There it is. It, it appeared 
what is it, October 1935 issue, page 33 and 34. Wow. Hmm. Disturbing stuff. Well, there could be another reason for that. Why is that? Uh, someone might have read that, and think about the time, 1935, and where, where this country was at. Someone might have read that and realized that someone was on to something in terms of technology that could be play an important part. Maybe. Later, later on in the war efforts. I mean, you know, that stuff was looked at. That was a technical journal. Someone may say, stop. <laughs> you know, I, 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 saw, I personally saw some things, Bill, that occurred in the mid-30s that people knew what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, like when I was in Midway Island, I saw that they were making preparations for war in 1935 because they knew that that was an outpost. So I, I wouldn't put it past that there may be another explanation for that. I mean, aside from what you said, there may be another that someone says, this could be really important technologically. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting idea. It could be. But it's, it's just, it, you know, it is it is kind of interesting to delve into the, the history of this stuff, especially oh, yeah. single sideband. Because let's yeah. face it, Pete, we're mostly about single sideband here. Yeah, yeah, you got it. You got it. There's some great articles in here about double sideband, too. You'll, you'll see the occasional reference to guys who are running huge power on double sideband. <laughs> hey, hey, speaking of that, are you are you going to get on next week uh, with uh, Field Day with your Northern Virginia double sideband, double conversion, whatever it is, double oh, dip? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, you know, Field Day. You, are you hey, going to Field Day? No. No, neither. <laughs> but I may, I may get on the air and give a few contacts out. That's it. We, we two serve who stay at home in the air yeah. conditioning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Maybe 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 I will fire it up. I'll, I'll pull out the gel cell battery, and make some contacts with the fishing rig. Yeah. There maybe. you go. There you go. We all we also serve. Hey, uh, you know, when I was talking to Farhan here, this is something. This, this I guess we're gonna. We're, this is the part of the the podcast where we grouse a little bit about other people. We don't want to get now, but you know, you, you, you anyway. Farhan told me a story that that he picked up out at the. Uh, the gathering, the geek fest that he that he was at at, at Wes's house, and I, I'm going to be a bit discreet here, and I'm not not going to share the name of the person who told the story. But one of the guys there said that he got on the air on with a, with a sideband rig, homebrew sideband rig, of course, and he told the other fellow that he was talking to on the air that the rig was homebrew, and the guy comes back, and you've you've heard this, and so have I, and the guy said, "Wow." Your rig sounds really good for a homebrew rig. And the person, the homebrewer's response was, well, your rig sounds pretty good for a Yesu, too. (laughs) (laughs) This is, uh, this gets us to uh, the, the portion of the show I'm calling Going Off the Waterfall or Going Over the Waterfall, the SDR Superiority Syndrome. I'm not going to mention any names, but I got on with the, the Bidex Digitia. Now, you know, I've been using this rig for, you know, several years now, and I, I get nothing but good reports. I've looked at it on, uh, on web SDR displays. It's been, it's, it's received a lot of scrutiny. Okay. But I get it on. Has, it has a commercial filter in it too. Right? It's got exactly. the commercial, it's got a commercial filter. It's got a Yesu yeah, filter okay. in it. But you know, I was talking to this guy. He's a nice fellow. Don't get me wrong. And he's, he's been in ham radio for a long time. But he started telling me 
there's a weird thing with the waterfall displays. It provokes all kinds of strange sort of technical sounding words that don't really mean anything. He said to me, um, you know, Bill, I, I hate to tell you, but uh, I'm seeing some feathering on your signal. Okay. <laughs> feathering. Yeah. Feathering. Okay. So I'm thinking, what is he talking about? And then he follows up. And this is what they almost always say. I think you need to back off a bit. I think you're hitting it too hard. Ooh. Well, okay. But then the other, the other important point was he told me, he said, you're extremely strong here. You're like 30, 40 over. Well, this is, this sort of reminds me of the situation you get into where the ham down the street, you know, a half a mile down the road calls you up and says, Hey, I'm listening to that homebrew rig you made and I hate to tell you, but you're six or eight KCs wide. Yeah. Half a mile down the road <laughs> where, you know, where I'm 60 over nine, you know, I'm really pegging your meter. I'm probably overloading the receiver. But I think what what people fail to realize is that these non-SDR rigs that we build actually have skirts on the filter, right? So if you're extremely strong, that filter skirt means that you're not going to be precisely 2.7 kCs wide all the way down. And on, on voice peaks, on signal peaks, those skirts mean that the signal might have little where they tell you, I'm seeing some energy, you know, above and below. It's kind of, I don't know, it caused me to sit back. I, I, I've got to stop paying attention to it because I did sit back and think, holy cow, is something wrong there? But no. Your thoughts, Dr. Giuliano? Well, I, I, I you know, I sent you an email, and I, I fully agree with you. And I, I think the thing is, is that uh, the FCC has made allowances for this that's talking about uh, when you're 60 dB down, you could be 6 kilohertz wide and still be in compliance. You have nothing wrong with your rig. Right. You know, it's because, because of that aspect. The other thing, too, is I don't think these people fully understand what they're looking at. No. I mean, if you if – you, and, and if you look at the, uh, the issue, I mean, he was taking – I think taking issue with your filter, saying, oh, your filter was not doing these things and back off. The only thing on the front end side of the filter that could uh, could affect the signal is the amount of mic gain that you have, especially with the Digitia. I mean, yeah. that's the only variable. You've got a fixed gain amplifier ahead of that crystal filter. you got a balanced modulator, which is an SVL1, which was not an active device. So the only thing you have is, is the mic gain. So anything beyond that is you're just amplifying the signal. So, yeah, you could crank back on the mic gain. I mean, there, there is a possibility that you're overdriving it or flat-topping it. But if, if you're not and you're looking at that on the scope, then it's purely – a fact that you're so strong that he's seeing you down on the on the bottom parts of the skirts, and he's able to visually look at that on a 72 inch screen. <laughs> right. Know, he, he, that that's the answer. Where you can turn up the resolution so that you can see down that far. Yeah. I mean, you could you could yeah. you could turn it up. So yeah, I uh, so I'm I'm just gonna you know he was trying to be helpful. It wasn't it wasn't I, a I bad mean, guy. Don't get me wrong. Your, you want to check your mic gain to make sure you're you're not flat topping, and if you're not, say you know what. Maybe you better understand what you're looking at. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a, it, it gets, it gets, it gets ugly pretty fast. So yeah. I, I did send him an email. I tried to explain yeah. it a little bit, but he didn't respond. So who knows? Anyway, enough of that. Uh, no more feathering. So we have to have feathering. If you have a lot of presence, 
it could. I, I would like a formal defi- definition of feathering. I mean, <laughs> you've, got, you've got my interest now. What what does feathering mean? I actually feathering. I actually Googled it to see if that this might be a, as the kids would say a thing, but no. Um, well, I've heard the term feathering dealing with like a painting. Where you have a uh, you have two different colors that that are distinctly different, and what you do is you kind of take one color and you smooth it into another color. You kind of feather it so that it doesn't look like a discontinuity, abrupt. You know, it's a transition. Mm. So I, I've heard of feathering in the paint in the, from a painting standpoint, but I've never heard it in a radio aspect. All right, if anybody out there knows. What the, the 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 meaning of feathering well, the is formal the, definition. Not yes, try, you know, not, um, what, what did what did what did Terman what did Terman tell us about feathering from yeah. you know, Stanford back in you know 1947? Yeah. 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 But no, but if anybody knows what they're talking about with feathering, shoot me a, an email. Sure. I'd, I'd like to know. Hey, have you seen this new AWRL book by Paul Peel on Arduinos? Yeah, I like it. I get the sense that you're not crazy. Well, I, you asked if I saw it. I saw it. Matter of fact, I had a, a round of emails with him. Uh-huh. He ran across something and he said, hey, you need to read my book. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I haven't read his book, so I don't know. But I just, you know, it sounded like he was an expert in this, and that's great. Terrific. All right. Well, I, I, I got it. I got a copy of the book, and I, I'm trying to get a copy sent to you so you can take a look at it. Oh. I, I liked it, and AWRL is uh, is 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 very interested in kind of in promoting the book. So they they uh, so Tom Gallagher sent me a copy to take a look at, and I got to say, you know, as somebody who's gone through his his own struggles with Arduino, this thing seemed to me just about the right level. I, I liked it. There's a lot of stuff in there about all the different boards, a lot of stuff in there about different displays and everything else. I I think we should take a look at this thing, and I, sure. I thank uh, I thank Tom for for sending a lot of good info, a lot of uh, a, again at the right level, a lot of good projects in there. So I was I was pleasantly surprised. A lot of times when you get these books about Arduino, it's they'll they'll have on the cover great for beginners, and then you'll go in there and you'll realize, uh uh-uh, uh no no, yeah. this is sort of at moderate level, uh, kind of intermediate level. I I I liked it a lot. So. Uh, Three cheers for uh, for Popeil and the Arduino book, and I, I recommend people take a look at it. You know, there's a another side to this bill, and and I, I will do that. I, I haven't seen the book, so I can't I can't you know really comment. I haven't looked at the depth, but but there's another aspect to this that we have some unsung heroes out there, and some people are doing amazing things. And one is our friend Dean AC9JQ. He he is working on something that just totally blew my mind he he has come up with a method with this really teeny teeny tiny oled display and on this board on the back side of it is the arduino he's got the si5351 and he's got the encoder and it's all one little assembly that screws to the front panel <laughs> and, yeah you know, and, and when i when i build things i mean i got four boards and it takes up a lot of real estate and i'm looking at that and i'm saying we need to have someone that publishes a book saying okay this thing works but it, it takes up so much real estate in the rig and i mean i looked at that and i said dean you're brilliant <laughs> i mean you use some really common things and i'm saying god I'm, i feel ashamed that i didn't think of something like that. you know he he's gone a step further because 
Somebody was doing something a little bit similar, and those are the, the guys who were doing the Chinese kits, the CK kits, China kits. We had those up on the blog, and we talked about it. And they made something similar. It's just like a little tiny stack of boards. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got the, the Arduino. It's got the uh, uh, the SI5351. It's got a rotary controller. Theirs did not have, the CK kits did not have a display. It had like some little LED that would blink you you know, Morse code, what the frequency is. And I always find those things kind of, yeah, at, at best, clumsy, right? Yeah, yeah. But and, but what Dean has done is he has gone a step further and he's attached the OLED screen. And I looked at that OLED screen that he's using. And I, know, I know you got some. Yeah. That's I that's ha- that's half the size. Yeah. It's, ha- it's half the size of the one inch by one inch OLED that I'm yeah. using. Half yeah. the size. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of pixels, I was trying to get a sense of how big it was. And in terms of pixels, it's got the same width dimension, but it's got half the height. Yes. Tiny little thing. Yes. I'll Great send you stuff. Some pictures. I, I, I've got one working. I'll send you some pictures. And and you, I, I, I will say this. You cannot use, uh, there's text size. You Text size one, text size two, text size three. Text size one doesn't display real well it, it will on the one inch by one inch but not on this but the text size too is perfect oh man good stuff yeah, so i'll send you some pictures of text size too and i i looked at that and i said see that's that's where we need to head where someone takes this and shows you how you can make it compact so that if you want to build i mean i'm thinking about your fishing rig yeah if you wanted to do that you, the first thing you'd run into is you got all these boards with the Arduino and everything else, and this this negates what you're trying to do. But you get this little module in there. It's got it in there. Yeah, and and he he came up with an interesting suggestion. He said, you know, you could integrate this into into a rig and have a second display, like if you wanted to make this into an S meter by itself. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. small enough yeah. to be. To be unobtrusive, as you say, oh yeah, that's the S meter, and I'm saying, hey, that guy's onto something. He really is. No, no, it's good. And I, he's such a good guy. I, I contacted him and I said, hey, it would be good if you put a header on the board so you could just plug the OLED, you know, the four pins of the OLED, right onto the board. And then he went ahead and is making some of them. So yeah. I, 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 I gotta, I gotta get in touch with Dean. I need, I need one of those. Yeah. But yeah, it is great work. And this is what I'm. My whole point was: you you see all this how to program it and all that, but then how do you take this thing and make it compact and make these modules? And I, I think someone needs to capture that. And I, I did want to highlight what I saw what Dean was doing. Totally amazing. All right, now it is. I agree. And this gets us to the the bench reports. And I know you got some stuff to talk about, but since we're talking about OLEDs, I'll go through mine rather quickly, and then sure. we'll go into the Dishal sure. Dystopia. Right. Um, but I, I've kind of finished work on my NE602 transceiver, and it, it's working fine. And, you know, it, my the thing started out, I think I told the story here several times, it started out with just the OLED and the SI5351. Then I decided to make a receiver. Then you said make it a transceiver, and the thing just started, you know, spontaneous construction. construction. And then and, and what I discovered was how much I like a nice big box with a hood, because these, these wooden boxes that I built the BIDX in, it's so easy. You want to go inside, you open the hood. It's like opening the hood on a 65 uh, Mustang. You know, boom, you open the hood, everything's right there. You don't have to flip the board over. There's nothing underneath. Everything's right there. You don't have to. Well, that's not the case with this rig. It's, everything is under this chassis, 
and I've had to build up onto the walls, right? So it's 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 a crowded, crowded place, and it's not a lot of fun to work on. Opportunity for shorting something out. It's an oh, it, it makes it makes it a lot more complicated. So yeah. it made me really appreciate the, uh, the big box with the hood. I um I I blew up an OLED display on it. You know, one slip of the screwdriver, and you short out the pins, and poof, <laughs> the magic smoke is released. So I replaced it. And I ended up with a blue OLED display, and it might just be me, but it seems like the blue OLED display is a bit noisier than the white one. I don't know. But I had to put a little bit of shielding, a little bit of copper flashing around it that brought the noise down. But I must say, I do think the OLED displays are a bit noisier than our big 16 by 2s I think there is a bit of noise there. Now, if you're on 40, it's kind of masked by the band noise. It, you know, you, you, As soon as you connect the antenna, you really can't hear it, but it's it's under there, so it's contributing... To, to the noise but um the final thing on this project that i did was you know so many of the other rigs that i've worked on i've really just been building and modifying and doing a variation on like farhan's bid x or farhan's bid x with a tia so i never really felt the need to come up with a big complete schematic but this one this 602 rig is kind of different from anything i worked on before and it's not really just borrowed from somebody else's schematic so I started looking at what's the best way to document it, what software to use. And I, 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 I poked around a bit on the Internet, and there's a lot of different suggestions for different kinds of CAD software, simple CAD software, schematic writing software, and I tried a number of them. And I gave up on all of those that I tried because I realized that each one had its kind of own rules, its own way of moving the symbol, all that stuff, and its own learning curve. And I said... Nope, I'm not going to do that this 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 often. I don't want to go through the the prob all the hassle of figuring out how to do simple little things like draw a, a wire or erase a part or clip or cut and paste and all that. The the software where I know how to do all that is LT Spice, because you know not not for necessarily for schematic drawing, but just for for modeling. But in the course of learning LT Spice, you learn how to draw the schematic on the, on the screen. You learn how to go to the parts bin, put everything there. So I I just used LT Spice to to really draw the schematic in digital form, and I was pretty pleased with it. I got it up on the uh, yeah. on the blog. I mean, I don't think LT Spice is it's not really made for that. It's made for modeling, but it it worked out pretty well, and I was able to get a, a I think a, a decent error free schematic up on on the blog. So. Uh, that might be one way of doing it. Plus, parts of it are actual models. Parts of it actually have real parts. Some of the parts are just drawings. Like, I didn't have the model for um, uh, a 555 IC. I did have the model for the 602s. So you, you could take at least portions of it and make it come alive in, in LT Spice. What what I really like about when I when I saw your approach to this, I say, you know, one of the things you can do, you can draw just circuit modules and then you can uh, capture those as a bitmap and print them. And then yeah. what you could do is just cut and paste. <laughs> you know, you could cut the modules out, and and you could have a roadmap, essentially a roadmap blueprint of what you're doing. Tape it up on the wall, and it's large size. I mean, you know, it's, if you make it really small, it's going to kind of hard to see. But if you print it eight and a half by eleven in circuit modules, you could tape those all together and. Man, Bob's your uncle. You you got yeah. a real schematic you can put on the wall and say, "This is what I'm doing." I like the module idea too. 
not not necessarily from taping it up on the wall, but like I said, there are portions of that schematic Simulate. that are uh, there are actual modules. So like the the front end filter, the NE602 at the front end, the uh, the oscillator, that's easy to model. The crystal filter I found is not easy to model in LT Spice, so that's that's a bit harder. And some of the ICs that we're using, I just don't have the model, so I just drew out a picture. Some simple stuff is kind of difficult to model in LT Spice. I haven't found a good model for a variable resistor, so I just have to oh, draw yeah. a resistor, right? Yeah. There's not a good mo there's not a good model for a double pole double throw relay, right? So there are things, there are gaps in the LT Spice library at least my library, that are, that are hard to fill. So I, I, I do kind of like your idea of taking, you know, like the audio amplifier, you could probably model pretty pretty easily. Uh, the mic amp, you could model pretty easily. The whole thing, putting it together, that would be cool if you could. And I joke with somebody, I said, if you actually were able to model this whole thing, turn it on, <laughs> turn it on. <laughs> hook up an amplifier to the output. <laughs> but uh, that, that, that would be, that, that's kind of interesting. But it was, it was a fun exercise. So Pete, you go ahead. have been modeling, too. But go ahead. You were going to say something about me. I, I, you know, one thing I, I wanted to uh, make just a suggestion. Uh, I took a look at the schematic, um, and maybe I missed this, but a block diagram yeah. would be helpful if you if you could modify that so you could see. Because people are always used to looking at blocks and just something that, that I mean, you look at it, and if, unless you know what you're doing, you might get overwhelmed. By yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's all this stuff? You can just create a little block diagram that would be useful to i'm gonna to do that but this reminds me of, of something that i saw in in popeil's book on the arduino he gets in and talks about how he developed the the drawings for the book and he talked about the software that he used for uh the schematics but there's another set of drawings there where he's actually where you actually drawing pictures of the parts and the wires it's a different kind of diagram it's much more for beginners. You know, it shows like, okay, here's the circuit board. Here's where you put the switch. Here's where you put the pot. And they actually have software that lets you draw that kind of oh, that'd be like good. parts placement diagram. A and that's pictorial. A pictorial. Right. And, and there's, right, right, exactly. And there, and he, he mentions that in the Arduino book. So there you go. Another reason to take a look at the book. But Pete, I know you have been suffering with what I've called, you got a different term for it, but my term was Dishal Dystopia. Uh, okay. Try, Pete, Pete, Pete was trying to make the perfect crystal filter, or a perfect, right. or, or a more perfect crystal right. filter. Right. And we discovered that the perfect is the enemy of the, of good, the good enough. But yes. tell us about it. Yeah. Well, no. first of you must take my comments uh, as just someone who after going through a rigorous process, is not satisfied with the result. Now, maybe I did something wrong. I don't know. I may have. Uh, I don't think so. But uh, the the additional uh, software is a nice package because, it, it, first of it, lets you do a simulation of, of filters using various numbers of crystals. And, and it does have a process. It's well documented. And I mean, first of all, you got to characterize the crystals and put the information in. And it gives you a plot. It says, this is what the filter will look like. And so I built a sick crystal filter. And uh, I, I rigorously followed the process. I put the right capacitors in. I didn't do what our friend Bob did. He took his grinder and ground, ground the crystals, <laughs> capacitors down to get the right value. I didn't do that. But I came really close. I bought it. 
I bought high accuracy uh, NPO crystals, paid a, paid a premium, I mean caps, paid a premium for them. Uh, I made double checked uh, all my crystals to make sure that they were all in the same frequency and went, went through all that. And when I built the six crystal filter, it was disappointing. I mean, I, I plotted the output several times. I made sure that I had a uh, properly terminated. I made sure I had a source resistor in there. <clears throat> and my curve on the six crystal f filter just didn't look anything like the dishel. So I said, okay, let's put it in the rig. Uh, I put it in the rig, and it didn't sound really good. So I said, well, that didn't work too well. So then I said, okay, let's let's try something simple. Maybe I should have started with a four crystal filter first, then moved up to the six. And I said, maybe I'll have better success because the requirements are a little less rigorous with a four crystal filter than they are with a six. <clears throat> so I built the four. And I plotted it, and my plot is very close to what the Dishel plot is. So I can look at my plot. I have it up on the blog. My plot, actual real plot versus the Dishel plot, it's got the same basic Dishel shape. Put it in the rig, and I'm not happy with it. I mean, it it just it sounded too broad. It didn't just didn't sound like something I could have just thrown four crystals in there with some caps and said, okay, yeah, there we are. So I, I just said, I put a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of measurement and I double checked things, took a lot of data, made many runs and I just didn't see a result. And, and what bothers me is the plot on the four pole looks like the Dishel plot. I mean, they're, they're pretty close. I didn't overlay them, but I can look at one, look at the other and say, yeah, there's no, I mean, it's flat at the top and the skirts come down. Actually, the additional skirts are not symmetrical. You'll see the, the one, if you put more crystals in there, you'll get, yeah, 12 crystals, you get a very symmetrical. But six, you still get somewhat of a discontinuity and four, you get more than with a six. So all the people who, and, and I've had some people say, oh, yeah, I built it. And so then I said, did you put it in the rig? No. <laughs> you know, I built it, yeah, and I, I plotted it, and it looks really good. And so I'm not sure, uh, and some of them were for CW, which may be less noticeable than on sideband. I don't I don't know. But, I mean, I just, all the effort put into it, I just did not get the result that I thought you should. Uh, and some people, I put a, a recording, and some folks says, oh, it sounds really good to me. I said, well, it doesn't me. <laughs> I mean, I, did, I you play, did you play? Did you play? Did you play around a little bit with the BFO frequency yeah, on it? And yeah. that was the other yeah, thing too: is uh, where the BFO, where I looked, the BFO sounded the best. Didn't look like it should be on on the six pole. Didn't look like it should be on the. It should be on the slope of the curve. It wasn't. It was like on the flat portions where it sounded. Now on the four pole, that was different. On the four pole, I did try the BFO. So I, I closed my eyes and said, "Where does it sound the best?" Then I look at the number, and I could see. So. There, there are some issues here that I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I mean, pe people who have measured this stuff do a, a rather rigorous approach. They have some pretty sophisticated testing here. I mean, uh, one guy has an, one of these IFR uh, uh, spectrum analyzers, so he runs it on a spectrum analyzer. I don't have one of those. So, I mean, do I have to invest in a spectrum analyzer now just to build a digital crystal filter? Um, I, I'm not going to do that. But I, mm. I sure came close, and and I used uh, the field tech, which you can get down to one hertz. You know, you can do one hertz movement on that. So I mean, there's there's things that I 
I was very careful. I made multiple runs, and, and you know, they all support themselves with regard to the data. So I also heard from people that they had results similar to mine with additional. They said, oh, yeah, I did that, and I, I've seen that. I've seen that same problem. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the two guys that wrote this article was in 2009 in QEX, but I haven't seen too much more beyond that. So it would be kind of interesting to know anybody that's built the dish and what success did you have, and how does it sound in the rig? I mean, ultimately, it's got to pass the listening test. How does that's it, it sound? How does it. It sound, how does it sound in the rig? And it didn't sound right to me. I mean, the, the plot looks good. On the four pole, the plot on the six pole, forget it. So, I mean, I had some suggestions like <laughs> rip that crap out of there and make a, low, a min loss cone filter out of it and you'll be happy. You know, well, I mean, you should be able to make the dish work. And I have no explanation why the six pole doesn't even come close. The four pole does. And it's four pole doesn't sound that good. No. Let's hear it. Let's hear it from the experts out there. Tell yeah, us about tell, your experiences about with the dish all. You know, but one thing this whole, your whole experience with this, Pete, got me thinking. And especially in light of my uh, my suffering with the uh, the waterfall police, you know, with so many people out there using SDR rigs, more and more SDR rigs out there every day. I mean, I don't obviously. I'm not going to say we should go in that direction, but it does sort of argue in favor of six or eight pole crystal filters with steeper skirts. Yeah. You know, it, because if we were living in a world where people weren't looking at our signals on waterfalls, it really wouldn't matter because people wouldn't hear anything. They wouldn't notice anything. But if people are going to be pulling out the magnifying glass and, and looking at the signals, if you had a, a, a crystal filter with, with steeper skirts, it, unless you were, you know, 60 over at the location, your, your signal probably would be indistinguishable. I mean, it doesn't. It, it it seems kind of silly to do it that way, but you, that is one of the benefits, I think, of going with six or eight poles. Listen to the comments you always get. You sound okay, but I saw some energy. Oh man, that's it. That's exactly what the guy said. I'm not. It doesn't sound distorted, but you must be overdriving it because I'm seeing some energy. Yeah. It's it's the skirts. I'm convinced it's the skirts. Yeah. I actually, I think I talked a while back. I, I was talking to one young fellow who was deeply into SDR, hadn't been in radio for a while, and I told him about my rig, and he said, well, what, what are you using for a filter? And I told him, you know, six surplus computer crystals. I honest to God, I don't, I don't think he understood that most rigs until recently had crystal filters. And he said, he was actually genuinely astonished. He said, my gosh, he said, the, the skirts must be atrocious. Atrocious. You know, because they're not sort straight, of straight. vertical-ish. Yeah, brick, yeah, brick wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, anyway, yeah. hey, one thing I wanted to mention on, on the on the dishall and the designing the crystal filters. One thing, again, I'm, I'm obsessed with electric radio this month, but one thing I've noted, and I didn't realize this, G3UUR who came up with the method, you know, the whole, and a lot of the, the, the kind of the theory behind the way we build crystal filters was a frequent contributor to electric radio. A lot of really good technical articles by him in, in ER. Now, this is good and it's bad. It's good because it's there. The bad is that electric radio does not have like the wide circulation that you'd get when, from some of the, <laughs> the mainstream ham radio media. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of specialized. 
And so there, there are people out there who could benefit from these articles, but unless they have access to a collection of electric radio, and there aren't that many of us who do, it's kind of lost on them. There's no searchable, you know, you can't get the article. They're, they're on paper on shelves scattered mostly across the United States and elsewhere. But there's a lot of good technical stuff in there. So, By, by, by the way, as a postscript to that, um, in one of the references, uh, there was discussion that the G3URR approach is not the best way to do it. And the reason is it ignores some parameters. It ignores some parameters that you have to find using a different method. And that's where right. you put the resistive load in there. Right, right. And then you move the crystal out, and then you put the load back in and says it ignores that, so you're it's gonna skew your results. So I'm saying, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, you, you're gonna go through this rain dance, but there was specific and I think it's in Kennedy's treatise that he talks about the resistive pad method, the 3dB loss method. Right, 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 and right. you, you got to yeah. determine what that uh, effective series resistance is, and it ignores and the, it in the G3URR, so it's going to skew your results. So I'm saying, man, <laughs> you're really making this thing tough. But I, I'm convinced if you want to build one, and, and people who build crystal filters probably are building one or two, and they're putting a lot of time, effort, and energy in one or two. I mean, if you were, you were thinking of doing like Uma, <laughs> yeah. one of the X forty, that ain't gonna work. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uma, Uma doesn't sit there and do the three dB. She's just sorting the crystals and say, okay, these four are close to frequency. Put those caps in, and that'll work. So I, I, I just want to make I want to make caution. The G three URR method ignores the effective series resistance, and you got to put the three dB loss. Now that's one of the options on the digital and I didn't do that I just said I, I have it actually I have the little test jig somewhere in the shack so you know this is a lot of effort and energy and, it, and it's you can't put a filter together in one hour okay <laughs> that's, no. that's the bottom line you're gonna you know what I did time. what I did one time when I was using that method and I that was you're right that was the, the harder parameter to come up with the equivalent series resistance yeah. or the Q there you know once you have one you have the other um, what I what I did was I looked at the crystals that I had obtained and looked to see on the manufacturer's spec sheet whether they had specified Q or equivalent series resistance. And they had something like not greater than, I forget the number, but they gave a number. So then using the software, and I usually use the almost all digital electronics software, the AADE software, I would just go in and they, would, they give you the parameters for the, the series caps, and termination impedance. And I looked and I changed it and I picked, okay, it, the, the Q could be this, the Q could be this, the Q could be this. It's one of these, right? First you start in the middle of the possible values, right? And then I looked at how much the, the, the component values changed when I went up and down and they didn't change that much. So it got me in the ballpark and I just picked, okay, I'm going to assume that it's this one and it, and it worked. But I know, what you, I know what you mean about the testing for this stuff. I remember when I first got, started building my first crystal filter. Doug DeMoor had an article, and I think it was in QRP Classics, about a, a, a circuit that you could build to test for crystal parameters, right? Yeah. My problem, my problem was that the test gear was far more complicated to build than the receiver that I was trying to build with it. <laughs> and there's another thing he said. He actually, in that article, 
because the guy who first came up with the, the test device was Hayward. Hayward came up with a crystal tester. That's probably the one I'm talking about. That's a solid state design of the radio amateur. And and DeMoss says, don't build that. <laughs> too hard. Too hard. Oh, man. He, it was he, hard. He said, he said, don't build that. Build this one. And and he, and he then the little brown cover has the picture of, of his, his tester there. So, I mean, even the, the two giants had a little disagreement about how you, how you do this thing. So, and you know, I I, sorry, I vaguely recall, and I don't I didn't look at it, but I think there was a some sort of modification to the G three UUR device that made it easier to get Q and equivalent series resistance. I hope that would be nice. Wouldn't that it's be good? a three D method. You can't you can't yeah. do it with just the oscillator. You got to put the you got to p- measure the crystal, and you come up with the resistance that gives you the yeah. same reading, and say that's it. Oh man. That's hard. That's hard. All right. A lot of suffering there, Pete, but, uh, you know. Well, little, it was uh, a good exercise for me, but I still have a question. Is my four-pole filter looks like the Dishel, but it sounds like crap. So so explain that to me. I mean, if I looked at only at the data. Well, you know, that's the other thing, too, uh, Bill. Are people only looking at the data and say, well, my, mine mashes the Dishel, so it must be good? Not necessarily. Wow. Okay. Interesting stuff. Anything else on the bench, Pete? We're in double overtime. Uh, well, I got my LM373 fully working and having a really good time with that rig. Ma- made a lot of contacts. Working DX. All right. Driving the big what, amplifier. Uh, on 20, right? 20 meters, yeah. All right, man. Good good stuff. And you, you got that rotatable antenna up there. Oh, yeah. All right. Good stuff. Um, all right. We'll do solder smoke mail back here. Um, first, special thanks to our correspondent in uh, in Dayton, uh, Bob Crane, W8SX. He did a great job once again interviewing many of the people who presented at Four Days in May, and we're putting we're slowly but surely putting the interviews up there. There's some really interesting stuff uh, and a lot of good interviews there. And I think you'll if you check out the blog, you'll see them. I have them, you know, FDIM interviews. You'll find them there. Uh, we got a really cool and very kind of well timed. Uh, email from uh, a guy that we knew from the, the the DC area here, right from from Fairfax County, Virginia. Jack Welch, uh, U.S. call AI4SV. His current call, get this, five radio eight Sierra Victor. Okay, Pete, where's five radio eight? Five radio eight. I ha- it sounds like in Africa somewhere. Very good, Madagascar. Yeah, he's yeah. he is our man in Antanarivo. All right, and he's on the air there in Madagascar, the island off the uh, the east coast of Africa. And I had just been talking about this with somebody else. Gene Shepard wrote, Gene Shepard was involved in many scams. At one point, I think Gene Shepard actually used the 50KW WOR transmitter for ham radio purposes. Did you hear about this? <laughs> no. The story was that he that he came to work and he brought like a shortwave receiver with him to the studio. And he told people, okay, let's do split band. You listen to me on WOR 710 AM. I'll transmit there. But if you call me on, you know, 7290 Bob's your uncle, man. There you go. (laughs) Fifty kilowatt smile. That powerful, powerful station with the fifty kilowatt smile. And that wasn't illegal. I it may have been. It's talk radio. It's talk radio. It wasn't illegal. There you go. Don't try this at home. But the other thing Shep did was Shep was always sort of kind of he he lived in New York City, but he was kind of hostile 
to the snootiness that sometimes exists in certain areas of oh, New York City. You, so, Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so he noticed that how books were evaluated in terms of their quality or value had a lot to do with how many people were asking for them at the bookstores. So he got on the radio one night and he said, look, I want you all to go to your bookstore and ask for a book called I Libertine by Frederick R. Ewing. Frederick Ewing is a yeah. amazing guy. He was in, you know, the he was in, in British Special Forces, you know, and he wrote this book and the book is described as being somewhat risque, so it's got that attraction. And so he had fans all over New York and all over the East Coast going into bookstores saying, "Don't you have Ewing's book I Libertine?" Then it started to create a bit of a buzz. This was like in the late 50s, early 60s. And people started talking about it in literary magazines and discussing the virtues of the book and, and how popular it was and how difficult it was to get. There's no such book. He made the whole thing up. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I read that book, it really turned, you know, it so cozy. But then, but, and then, then he kind of said, you know, ah, gotcha. Yeah, nobody read the book. Because there is no book. But then he wrote the book. <laughs> he, he, he wrote the book and they put it out. So uh, anyway, uh, Jack sent me a copy. And uh, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to take a look at this book. But it's, but it's an interesting story. First, we, we should make clear it's not the Jack Welch. It's Jack Welch, right? The GE yeah. the GE guy. Jack oh, no, no. This, this, this is a different guy. Different guy. Our Jack Welch is much more interesting fellow. <laughs> All right. Bruce, KC1, FSZ. Uh, he's building a scratch belt Bidex. He's the guy who built the uh, the peppermint peppermint uh, beautiful uh, bidex beautiful yeah. rig. He's he's going scratch built, and he did something that I think is really cool, Pete. You know, while he was building the scratch built rig, he got the first few stages. Got the audio amplifier. He got he got the product detector going, and he realized that he could he had a DC receiver, and all he had to do was hook up the VFO from the SI fifty three fifty one to the port where the BFO is going to go. And, and you got a DC receiver. I'd never heard anybody doing that before. Sort of as an intermediate stage. Now, you did it with the LBS and all that. But, yeah. But, I mean, in, in terms of actually building a scratch-built bidex, just to get that early kind of sense of how that portion of the circuitry is working, think about that. You've got the, the product detector. You've got the audio amplifier. You've got the SI5351 going. And instead of hooking up the BFO frequency to that mixer, you hook up the VFO frequency You've got yourself basically a DC receiver. So uh, good good going there, uh, uh, Bruce. Very nice. Uh, Greg, VK1, VXG. Good man. Uh, had some good yeah, man. Good guy. Had some suggestions for um, a, a, an Arduino serial crystal plotter that uh, WAAWDQ is working on. This is, I think, similar to the Sweeperino circuit that, that, that Farhan has. Uh, ben, KC9DLM sent us something about a, a, a permeability-tuned oscillator employing a syringe filled with liquid mercury. Uh, that bothered me a little bit. <laughs> liquid it mercury. It was creepy. Yeah. It was in the syringe. It's got a syringe. It's got yeah. liquid mercury. Yeah. Uh, we basically said, no thanks. I mean, yeah. we've got enough danger in ham radio with, yeah. with high voltage, yeah. selenium rectifiers. Yeah. Anything greater than 12 volts is dangerous. <laughs> Throw in a radium dial or something yeah. like that. Holy cow. No, no thanks. Nope. 
and then put it, you know, on your motorcycle so you can run the rig motorcycle mobile. There you go. Buh, no, 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 we don't need this. K- KY3R, somebody I meet up with all the time at the, uh, at the local ham fests, sent us uh, a suggestion on how he turns, like, ordinary cardboard cigar boxes into uh, metalized cabinets suitable for Bidex rigs. Very, very nice. I like that. Richard, uh, KB2PEF. Uh, who wrote to us a while back, he was trying to revive his Doug Dumois 8 Papa 6 Barbados rig, and he built one a long time ago, didn't get it going. Now he's got it going. Um, But he's bothered, like a lot of people are, and I don't get this, but he's bothered by the push-to-talk thump. You know, on some of our simple rigs, when you hit that push-to-talk button and when you release it, there's this thump. And I always think it's just this is just simple circuitry. I mean, you could go in there and time the relays and everything else so that you don't hear the thump. But man, <laughs> if it's a simple bit X, live with the thump. I mean, but there, there's there's kind of a there is a kind of a perfectionist element out there that don't doesn't like that. You know, the thing I those like some of the new guys they don't like the the hiss that comes out of the speaker when they hook up the antenna, like the static, like. You know the forty meter noise. They don't like that. It's it's not a it's not a bug. That's a feature. Yes, yes, that'll let you know it's working. <laughs> by by the way, uh, our good friend G four G X O has a thump killer. Thump killer. Thump killer. Uh-huh. Yeah, he he puts a fet a fet in the uh, audio circuit uh, so that there's a little delay before the audio yes. op- open up. I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. Yep, that. Yeah, very, very good. A yeah, similar run. circuit. I think I, I yeah. put it up on the BitX hack site. Very yeah. similar. Very nice. All right. Got to wipe out the thump. And then finally, the last bit of mail. I had mentioned that we had noticed that Dave, AA7 Echo Echo, um, who had this, he has a, for years had this beautiful site where he had these great pictures of all the rigs. I mean, really fine photography, very, very detailed, beautiful, beautiful stuff. And then all of a sudden the blog stopped. And, you know, I was worried about him. But uh, Mike, KC6SAX, wrote, says that, uh, and, and passed along a message from Dave. He says, I'm not sure if I'm taking an extended break from home brewing or whether this actually counts as me pretty much stopping altogether. Boo, come on, come on, Dave, get back in the game. I have no thoughts of starting up again in the last few months. I'm afraid I've been putting together programming for a part 15 AM station for my neighborhood. Oh, come on, man, get back into the real radio. Dave, we miss you. We need you. Get back, make some rigs. Regens, homebrew, direct conversion, well, build a bidex. Yeah, he probably got negative comments and just says, "Screw this stuff." You know, <laughs> you, you get you get a lot. You get you see that on solder smoke, and I see it too. You know, people want to pick at you and say, "Well, okay, have at it." You know. But the vast majority, Pete, the vast yeah. majority of our listeners, yeah, love the podcast. They love listening to you. They love the tribal tribal knowledge so we're just going to persevere hey, hey i wanted to interject something uh from my past life and uh this is the with the cigar box the metalized cigar uh-huh. box when i worked in industry we actually had uh, metalized spraying where they would make parts out of composites composite materials which are of course non-conductors and uh, like uh, nose cones and things of that sort where they wanted a metallic surface and then after they made the uh made the nose cone out of composite, they had a metalized spring device. They put a conductive layer on this thing. So if we had access to one of those machines, we get the cigar box, we could put the metalized spray on it and turn it into a metal structure. So 
there's there's technology out there to really do that and do it with precision. <laughs> All right, and do it with a 3D printer. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Why not? Yeah, the, the latest technology, sure. All right, before we get completely carried away, Pete, I think that marks the end of this episode of the Solder Smoke Podcast. Yeah, and, and before, I just want to close again with saying, uh, Bill, congratulations. Congratulations to Farhan for your induction into the Hall of Fame. We're going to look for great things for you to, from, from you to provide leadership in uh, the QRP art. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da